Good morning, everyone. You're listening to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design, and I'm your host, Jason Taylor, joined in the WXIR studios by my good friend and co-host, Matt Treadwell. Good morning. On today, well, I should first say that today is Saturday, September 26th, so if that is also the date that you are in right now, we're, we're live then. So Saturday, September 26th, 2020. That means we'd love to hear from you throughout the hour by giving us a call in studio, 585-219-8889. What might you want to call in about? Well, on today's show, we'll be talking about a report recently released by the Rand Corporation. They're kind of a nonprofit research-based uh, institution. I don't know why they call themselves corporation, but uh, they came out with a report last week that details how basically the bottom 90% of income earners in the United States, so the vast majority of Americans, have had their incomes not grow to the same rate that our overall economy has grown. This has gone on, the authors say, since around the 1970s, so the past 40 to 50 years. And if our incomes, again, for the vast majority of Americans, the bottom 90% of income earners, if our incomes had grown commensurate with the overall economic growth, we would essentially have uh, 67% more <laughs> total income for the bottom 90% of all income earners. This is around $2.5 trillion. Instead of the median income being where it is today, it would be around, oh, let's see here, it would be around 30% higher. We'll get to that later on and delve more into the numbers, but Long story short, huh, we're going to talk about the report. We're going to look at what the Rand Corporation found. Why is it that our incomes have not risen in alignment with the growth of the economy? And what could be the potential causes for that? Although the authors of the report do not speculate on the causes, they just look at sort of, you know, what has happened. Uh, Matt and I might be able to fill in some blanks, <laughs> being uh, Rochester's premier uh, economic pundits. God help us. <laughs> well, you know, I just, so, you know, why I'm being tongue in cheek here is because for those who have listened to Evidence of Design in the past, our show, you know that our show is all about critiquing income and wealth inequality. We investigate the causes of economic inequality and examine its effects. Overall, we argue why our society is so economically unequal today is because of rampant what we would call neoliberal capitalism. This means that for too long, our policy leaders on both sides of the aisle, but largely on the conservative side of the aisle, have argued that the best way to run society is to have society run in the image of the free market have an unfettered free market, get government out of people's lives, and make it so that all aspects of our life operate in the image of the free market. Buy and sell, <clears throat> supply and demand, consume and produce, etc., etc., etc. And so we have now valued money more than human lives. Our show critiques that ideology and tries to uncover uh, you know, it's uh, where it came from, its causes, and its effects. We'd love to hear from you throughout the hour uh, with your thoughts on, uh, you know, where we stand with economic inequality today or anything else that's on your mind. Of course, in the backdrop of all of this are protests going on locally and nationally. I think that there can be a through line that connects with uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and, uh, you know, arguments for police reform to economic inequality as well. And I think just as an example, there's, there's plenty, but, you know, local organizer Ashley Gant has repeatedly said, you know, uh, our society is working in the interests of the Walmarts and the Wegmans and, and not <clears throat> normal everyday people. And so I think there's a lot to be said there as well. We would love to hear what your thoughts are by giving us a call. Again, 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. 
So we will be talking about the Rand Corporation report that was recently released on economic inequality. And then later on, Matt, we cannot leave this hour without hearing about the Supreme Court and how, you know what, did we would never see this day coming, how the Republicans are reversing their, themselves on their 2016 decision not to take up President Barack Obama's uh, Supreme Court nomination for Merrick Garland. They said never, sh you know, a lame duck president, meaning a president who will be leaving office at the end of the year, should not be able to nominate a Supreme Court justice. Well, well, shoot. <laughs> Look what's happening now with uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last week, and Republicans are now trying to fast-line Trump's third Supreme Court nominee through the system with less than two months until the election. Boy, oh boy. Uh, Barely a month. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's literally less than two months, whereas Obama had, you know, nine months. So uh, we'll, we'll hear clips from Lindsey Graham, of all people, uh, someone with a, a moral compass that I'm sure we all endeavor to follow, uh, my voice dripping with sarcasm. But we'll get to that right after a short break here on 100.9 FM WXIR. Stay tuned. I've been waiting for you, written by Neil Young and performed by Pixies. And this is Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Matt, this past week, the RAND Corporation, again, they're kind of a nonprofit institution that does a lot of uh, research and publish articles and, and things like that. This past week, the RAND Corporation came out with an, a working paper, actually. It's not yet peer-reviewed or published, but it's a working paper. came out tw uh, uh, in September this month, and it's called Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. It's by Carter Price and Catherine Edwards. Again, Rand Corporation Trends and in Income from 1975 to 2018. You can find that if you Google it. And so uh, in this paper, the Rand Corporation describes how had income continued to grow alongside overall economic growth at the same rate then the bottom 90% of the American working population would now have 67% more income, totaling at $2.5 trillion. So normally in sort of capitalist logic, if economic growth happens, then income growth should happen too, because there's more money in circulation and kind of the piece of the pie is not, you know, it's getting larger overall. And therefore, when productivity increases, income should increase as well. The problem that the authors uncover and that we've covered extensively on the show before is that our productivity has increased and our economy has increased over the past 40 years, for instance, but our incomes have not kept the same pace. And by our incomes, I mean the incomes of most working Americans. The incomes for people who are at the very, very top of our income and, you know, our economic distribution, the top 10%, say, the top 1%, say, their incomes have exploded. And the vast majority of, uh, you know, economic gains in both income and wealth have gone to the wealthiest of Americans at the expense of, off of the backs of the vast majority of Americans. And so, again, the authors of this report do not speculate as to why this is happening, but uh, we'll go into more of what they found with their data. And so, just to kind of point out, it's really quite interesting if we think about economic measures and how we uh, how we measure, uh, you know, our so-called productivity or income or wealth, is that these are relatively new measurements in society. They're only around like 300 years old that can be traced to kind of modern measures because, you know, now that most nation states in the world are capitalist societies with, you know, private property and income taxes and things like that, there's new ways to measure a nation's overall productivity and a nation's individual distribution of income and wealth. And so there's been really an explosion uh, in the in academia and also in public consciousness when it comes to how income and wealth is measured over the past you know ten or so uh, plus years. And in that research, a lot of folks have really uncovered like, oh my gosh, we are incredibly unequal. 
as a society. You know, we are mirroring inequality seen, you know, back right before the Great Depression, back in the time with the robber barons and monopolies and trusts and, and so on and so forth. And so uh, just kind of as a backdrop, uh, there's sort of new research coming out all the time, getting a better handle on how this stuff works. Sort of going off that, this article, although it's called... Um, Trends in Income. Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. It does also look at the three decades leading up to 1970 um, and sort of contrast that with the following five decades. So one of the things they found, uh, well, something that I think a lot of people have been aware of for a while now, but but something that this article or this paper also corroborates is that in the three decades following World War II, the 40s, the 50s, and the 60s, income inequality actually went down. In the 1960s especially, the most income growth was seen by the bottom quintile, the the, uh, lowest 20% earners in the U.S., which I think most people would agree is a good thing. I mean, the poor reaping the most benefits, I mean, uh, of, of income, of of gross domestic product growth that and and thus shrinking the gap and improving the um the standard of living for the uh lowest class members of society i think that we most people would say yeah that's great Right. So there have been periods of time in American history where, you know, economic growth has been more equal and less equal. And in the periods following World War II, as you've mentioned, Matt, our incomes rose at similar rates across the economic distribution. So a, a lot of times when you study economic inequality, the population is spit, uh, split into what you just named as quintiles, quints meaning five. And so, you know, you have the bottom 20% of income earners, then you have the 20 to 40%, 40 to 60, 60 to 80, and then 80 to 100 respectively. A lot of times, you know, the top 20% is compared to the bottom 20%, or you can look right at the middle, the 40 to 60%. It's just a way, again, as I'm talking about new ways and better statistical methods to measure economic inequality, different ways to compare and look at our, how our uh, society is doing on economic terms. And so uh, while you are splitting the population up into five different uh, quintiles, so you know percentage groups of 20% of the population, uh, in theory, if the overall economy grows, then if those five quintiles grow at the same rate, if the income going to those same five quintiles grows at the same rate, then economic inequality stays, you know, the the overall economic equality stays the same because no one is kind of gaining more uh, income over another group. You mentioned, Matt, how in the 60s, for instance, the income group that experienced the most economic growth was the uh, the lower income groups, the lower quintiles. That means that economic inequality decreased because most, you know, people are now kind of closing in. At least the lowest income earners are closing in on the higher income earners. They're still overall the lowest income earners, right? In a capitalist society, and for measurement purposes, you can always split people into five different groups so long as people are making different amounts of money. It just depends on how large those groups are apart, you know. And so I hope we're not losing anyone here with the math or the conceptualization. But the problem is from the 1970s until the present, still ongoing to this very day on Saturday, September 26th, 2020, is that the higher income earners, the highest quintile, the highest decile, meaning the highest 10%, or the highest percentage point, the 1%, has been pulling and pulling and pulling away from all the other parts of society. They've been getting a greater and greater and greater share of all income and wealth. And so the authors of this RAND report, again called Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018, say in in their reports, you know, they're measuring, okay, so there was a period of time in America from 1945 to, say, 1975 when uh, incomes in the United States grew either equally or the inequality actually shrunk because the lower earners actually uh, started to close ranks and gain more income than the upper earners. And Matt, I would agree with you. I think that's a, that's a good thing for a number of reasons. 
The authors of this report then wonder what happens if we have that same rate of of income growth for the lower and middle income earners in the U.S. What would happen over the past 40 years if we have that same more equitable growth as opposed to the one that we see today? Well, again, the authors conclude that most Americans, again, the bottom 90% of earners in the United States, so you know, 90% goes all the way from the from the very bottom income earner to someone who makes a whole heck of a lot of money. Um, we would see 2.5 more trillion dollars in income and have again 67% higher income than we do today. And that's two and a half trillion per year. Uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, overall, the 67% more income overall, and so that's a that, that's a big big point, you know. And so where are uh, where are income growth rates? similar to a more equal place. So it's not like, you know, the 40s through the 1945 to 1975 is the halcyon days in American society and that we figured it all out then. It's just saying, hey, back then we were at least seeing positive trends in our economy. What would happen now if we were seeing those same positive trends? Again, unfortunately, over the past 50 years, we haven't seen those at all. And in fact, we only continue to see a more pulling and pulling apart. Just a reminder for folks, though, that we are talking about the RAND Corporation report released last week detailing trends in income over the past 40 to 50 years. You can let us know what you think about this by giving us a call at 585-219-8889. Again, that's 585-219-8889. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester, Rochester's extreme independent radio station. Going off more findings from this Rand Corporation report, Matt, uh, they write, the authors write that uh, incomes from both labor and capital have increasingly been concentrated at the top of our income distribution over the past four decades. These are incomes both pre-tax and post-tax. I wanted to find a few terms there. I was right. It is two and a half trillion annually per, per year. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah, that, that matters. Uh, $2.5 trillion per year is, um, that's important. <laughs> that's a lot of money per year, especially when our overall GDP is what 20 trillion or something. I don't know, but that, yeah. So there would be a lot more money going that's to for the bottom 90% of Americans. Yeah. The bottom 90% of Americans would be bringing home two and a half trillion do- more dollars per year. Right. That would fundamentally alter our way of life. You know, literally a fundamental different reality that we would live in were more money going to the bottom 90% of American workers. And so uh, to define some terms when the authors write that more and more of the growth uh, from incomes of labor and capital are going to the top income earners, what well, labor and capital are, you know, kind of <laughs> Marxist terms here uh, and they're, reference points used to, to examine how capitalist society works. Labor simply means money you get from working. Capital simply means money you get from owning stuff in, in a nutshell. The vast, vast majority of Americans only have incomes from labor. And I believe in the study, the study, um, What's the, <laughs> in, uh, the uh, trends in income? Well, no, the uh, the people who conducted the study, they they mm. said that they did weren't they did not have a system in place to measure the capital right. of the bottom ninety percent, but it didn't matter because, as you said, Jason, most people don't earn. I mean, most people in who aren't in the one percent don't own any capital worth speaking of. I mean, most people, not all, but a lot of people have houses and cars, and that is a form of capital, but it's not the kind of capital that can be moved around. Like, if you have a car, you typically have one car. If you have a house, you typically have one house. We're not talking about people who own several pieces of property or several different kinds of uh, of wealth that they can move around and liquidate and yeah. store into offshore bank accounts and not pay taxes. <laughs> yeah, stocks, bonds, corporations, et cetera, et cetera. In fact, the authors of the report write, quote, capital income amounts to 2% of all the income for the bottom 99% of households. <laughs> and we've spoken on this uh, on this, you know, show before how like capital essentially doesn't matter at all for the vast majority of Americans. When we speak of capital for most Americans, we speak of all you just mentioned, Matt, which is 
homes and cars. <laughs> and those are great things, right? They've always been like the, the realization of the American dream, having your own home, having your own car. And a, a lot of freedom does come with that. We're not saying that's a bad thing at all. You know, being able to have your own house, being able to have your own form of transportation, that's, that's really phenomenal. The issue is, is that those, while they provide incredible amounts of sort of liberation for one's personal life. Independence. Yeah, independence. They don't transfer the same financial independence. Uh, one's house is worth, you know, $100,000. Let's just put a number on it. One's car can be worth $20,000. And the moment you drive it off the lot, it's worth $12,000. You know, that's not something you retire off of, you know? And so really when we're talking for Americans, the vast, the only thing that one cares about is labor. And this is why when we talk about labor rights, labor laws, increasing the minimum wage, that's really, really important stuff because that's what matters for the vast majority of Americans. You know, when we're talking about the estate tax and capital gains tax and business tax, all you're talking about is stuff that benefits the 1% and, and, and capital owners. And so, you know, Karl Marx would write that there is a, a fundamental uh, at oddsness between labor and capital. And I think that's true where capital always seeks to accumulate as much, uh, you know, profit as possible for its own ends and capital accumulates profit for its own ends at the expense of labor. The fundamental, you know, logic behind capitalism is that labor is never paid the true share of the work that it does. And it's not paid the true share of the work that it does because its profits go to capital people who are not necessarily doing the laborious work you know they could be doing other entrepreneurial labor work going to meetings figuring out business decisions etc but they're not the ones actually on actually on factory floors teaching children you know a building things stuff like that and we're not saying that that stuff doesn't have value or that those right. people don't deserve to be compensated or even perhaps compensated more than uh uh, someone working working in a less skilled job, but we are saying that the the difference in degree of what these people are earning is is wrong. Yeah, it's 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 become perversely, grotesquely skewed. And you know, if the only way you can earn, uh, if the only way most Americans get by is from incomes from labor, and if the amount that people get paid over time, if wages have not increased commensurate with inflation or overall economic growth, then therefore, period, end of story, people are falling further and further behind. Unless, for instance, capital gives up some of its share and redistributes, or according to the authors, you know, had a more fair society to distribute $2.5 trillion of income towards the bottom 90% of workers every year, or unless government steps in and creates other things like universal health care, universal basic income, etc., etc. Unless those things happen, then people will continue to fall further and further behind economically and socially and become further disenfranchised throughout society. And capital owners will continue to have more and more political sway as well. It's not just money. It's not just, it's not just so-called freedom. It's also power. And that's the problem. So let's look at some more examples, specific numbers and examples from this RAND Corporation report. Again, it came out this month called Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. You can Google it. It's by Carter Price and Catherine Edwards. Uh, just, just for one example of how the kind of the incomes look now and how they should look were incomes to rise commensurate with overall economic growth in a way that kind of happened in a more equal time in America from 1945 to 1975. So the authors found or write that, you know, the median income for adults in the U.S. in 1975 was $26,000. So 1975, $26,000 median income. Right now, the median income for those adults in 2018 is $36,000. So over the past uh, 50 years, the median income has risen by $10,000. Were the income were, uh, you know, that income to grow at the same rate that it did in the more egalitarian time in the U.S. between 45 to 75, the median income should be $57,000. So instead of rising just $10,000, it should have risen $30,000. So the rate of income growth at the median was less than one third of the rate of growth in overall GDP. 
So incomes have risen for the median worker at one third of the rate of overall economic growth. You know, where then does that other 60% of, you know, income go? It's gone to capital. And so, you know, th this is the fundamental problem. So workers should be making more money today. Well, speaking of capital, you know, uh, let, well, you know, speaking of owners of capital, let's continue to talk about just income though. Let's talk about the 99th percentile. So these are the top 99% of income earners in the U.S. In 1975, their income was $162,000 to Medium. be in, yeah, to be in that threshold, right? In 2018, their income rose to $491,000. So it exploded by around $300,000. If their income growth rose uh, align with the, or if, if their income growth rose at a rate commensurate with overall economic growth, their income should quote only be $353,000 as opposed to $490,000. So they would be making $150,000 less. Whereas the, you know, median income for all adults in the U.S. would have, should have risen $20,000 more. So again, this is kind of show, I, mean, I know this is not good for radio. This isn't great radio practice to share a bunch of numbers, but, uh, you know, the point is uh, in a nutshell that, uh, highest income earners, their earners have exploded. We're just talking about income here. We're not even talking about wealth at all, which right. is a whole nother discussion. The, the rate of growth for the 99th percentile was 171% of what it should have been. Right. 171% of what it should have been. And the rate of income growth for all all adults just earning an income in America was less than a third of what it should have been. Yeah, just 30%. It gets even worse when you go into the top 1%. Their income growth grow at higher than 300%. Right. <laughs> it just gets even more ridiculous. Like, it's yeah. not even like the 99%. It's like after that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The top 1%. Yeah. It, it, it really is, you know, it, it gets confusing with the numbers, but you have to kind of see the charts and graphs and, and kind of, you know, play it out. You have to have a little bit of math literacy here, which I, I'm not great with math, you know, but, um, having looking at it over and over and just thinking about it, it's like, it, it's the same story over and over again, where the higher you go, the more skewed and grotesque the, the, you know, income and wealth growth becomes. But I think that's such an important point to understand because when we're talking about income inequality or income and wealth inequality in America, we really are talking about a very small number of people controlling a vast amount of money. Yeah, absolutely. And it sort of becomes a trope, right? And, and I worry that it dilutes. You know, when we talk about the 1%, when we talk about Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg, you know, I know it sounds like a trope, but that, that actually really is literally part of the problem. Like there are a handful of people controlling a whole heck of a lot of stuff. <laughs> and it can sound like we're just complaining about the same people over and over again, but the reason why we know their names and are complaining about the same people over and over again is because it's literally just them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty more people than, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. There's, there's, you know, there's hundreds of billionaires right. uh, and so on and so forth. And, and that's part of the problem. People you've never heard of, you know, people who own different corporations that you sure as heck have heard of, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, if you follow the bread trail, uh, breadcrumb trail, you, you uncover these people and also millionaires too. You know, again, we're, we're, Matt and I are not faulting we're not inherently faulting people for having a lot of money. We're inherently faulting the system that has allowed them to have that much money. <laughs> well, and then they influence the system. Right. And then you can, then we think you can fault those people once they then take advantage of the system that has granted them the money they have. And they try to perverse the system to make it seem like they deserve the money they have and try to make it so that other people can't get to where they got to out of luck. So yeah, you know, that's when kind of fault comes into it, but it's not just wah, wah, this is unfair. It's, uh, these people end up influencing the overall political economic structure to disenfranchise the vast majority of America so that they can entrench their own power and interests. Uh, th this is why climate, this is why the richest, most powerful country in the world is, uh, doing like the least amount of any other country in the world when it comes to climate change, because the people, you know, these millionaires and billionaires who have a lot to gain from not taking action on climate change don't want it to happen. 
And therefore, they come up with really savvy uh, PR campaigns over the past several decades to hoodwink a bunch of uh, low-income Americans to believe that climate change doesn't exist. And now climate change has become a political issue in the United States when it should be an empirical issue, meaning one that's based on facts and science. It's only become a political issue because these millionaires and billionaires, uh, you know, thinking oil and gas executives, uh, don't want any action to be taken on it so they can continue to be what they are, millionaires and billionaires, because of their destruction of the planet. And so, you know, that's a great example of how where it's not just, wah, wah, this is unfair, let's whine about it. It, it literally affects people's lives. And, uh, you know, people knowingly make poor decisions so that they can continue to uh, have the power that they have. And, you know, this is the idea of, of Matt and I, and we, we'd love to hear from you as well, though, by giving us a call at 585-219-8889. That's 585-219-8889. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Matt, I want to bring in a brief overview of how race and gender plays into the income distribution as well. We've talked overall kind of in aggregate about, you know, different shares of the population. We talked about the bottom 90% of uh, income earners. We've talked about the 99th percentile of income earners, the top 1% of income earners. And, and we've sort of shared the findings of this RAND report so far that says, uh-oh, the vast majority of Americans have not had incomes grow in line with economic growth. We should all be making $2.5 trillion more a year or having 67% overall higher incomes. I would love to be making $2.5 trillion more dollars per year. <laughs> yeah, as an aggregate, of course, not per individual. Um, and, and so we've been talking about that, whereas income growth has exploded for the top earners. Well, let's bring in different analyses to this, such as gender and race. This is really interesting. There's a lot to this. You know, there's 30 pages in the report about this. We're not going to get to the nitty gritty, but overall, what's really interesting in the findings is that since 1975-ish, so over the past 50 years, white men's income has essentially remained flat or in fact decreased. White men's income has essentially remained flat or decreased. On the other hand, Women's income has dramatically increased. Yet they still don't make the same as men. Yet, of course, right. White men still overall, as a share, make more than women do. So the gender gap decreased, however, it still exists. Yes. So gender gap has closed, but it still exists. And so... According to the study. Yeah. And, and we know this, you know, it's not just the Rand Corporation coming up. We know, you know, women have entered the workforce in the seventies. Uh, they have fought rightfully and continued to fight for equal pay, for equal work. That's still not a reality. Men continue to make more than women for no reason other than being a man. And, and so that's unfair. Uh, and so, but, you know, again, looking at this from different angles, white men's <laughs> income has essentially remained flat over the past 50 years, if not decreased, whereas women's income have increased and closed the gender gap a little bit, but it still very much is there. Let's talk about race. Black men and women had incomes increase overall more than white men over the past 50 years, but it's still not by a whole heck of a lot, and white men and white women still make more than black men and black black women. And overall, uh, you know, white wealth and income is still r ridiculously higher than black income and wealth for no other reason than someone's color of their skin. And so, again, we're seeing trends where the gender gap is closing, where the race racial gap is closing. But, you know, the hierarchy still remain where white men still make more than women and, and their uh, colored counterparts. And these figures are excluding the top 5% of income earners? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, Matt, where the gaps all close except when it comes to the wealthiest of individuals in this country. Uh, when it comes to the, let's say, the top 5% of income earners, white men experienced dramatically higher income growth than any of their other counterparts, and even their other white counterparts lower on the economic scale. I don't have the figures to back this up, but I would be willing to put forth the idea that the reason why the top 5% of income earners, uh, why, why white men among in the top 5% of income earners 
earn more than black men is because the top 5% of income earners happen to mostly be white men. Exactly. And so, you know, the authors of this report don't go into that, but uh, it's true that the wealthiest of individuals in our society happen to be white men, you know, across all levels of society, but particularly of those of the capitalist class. White men control the means of production for the most part. And so the wealthiest of white men in our country have... uh, have pulled away from all other aspects of society, including their other white counterparts. And I think these trends here, you know, seeing the gender gap close slightly, seeing the racial gap close slightly, again, still egregious inequalities exist within all of those. White men are still on top uh, for, 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 you know, the economic distribution scale. But I think this narrative of like, uh, rural conservative white men feeling left behind by an economic system. Uh, it's true. <laughs> you know, their incomes haven't increased. Uh, they're still better off being a white man than a white woman or someone of color, just statistically speaking, because of uh, centuries of prejudice and racial um, structures in the society. But, you know, the sort of this notion that Trump is capitalizing on uh, white male anger. <laughs> You know, it's just really funny. And that was kind of a theory for why we started evidence of design way back after Trump was elected was that, wait a second, what just happened here? How did all of these white men end up voting for a billionaire who promised them economic salvation when Trump's billionaire ness is off of the is off of the backs of these white men for being low income to begin with? You know, it's yeah. sort of uh, like that's why we started this program to be like, hold on a second. There's, uh, there's a lot of. Uh, confusing things going on here with people's voting habits and <laughs> vote your interests yes certainly vote your interests people right <laughs> it's disgusting but i tell you this <laughs> if everybody voted their interests, the republicans would get like maybe a few thousand votes <laughs> they're probably yeah <laughs> if, if people actually were um if people actually had uh you know <laughs> robust historical and economic education the Republican Party wouldn't exist, you know. Not as it does. Not as it does today, right? It's it's really it's really amazing. It's, it's really amazing. So you know we're we're gonna wrap up kind of going into the numbers of this Rand report again. This came out this month. It's uh, by the Rand Corporation. It's called Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. A big part of this show, evidence of design, is to investigate the causes and critique the effects of income and wealth inequality. And this paper, I think, contributes valuably to the debate regarding uh, you know wh- how we are economically unequal today. It doesn't contribute to where uh, that economic inequality might come from, but uh, that's where we can perhaps step in and argue that it's because of neoliberal capitalism and folks on both sides of the aisle, but particularly the Republican side of the aisle, who have promoted policies over the past several decades to cut taxation, to get government out of the lives of people, to restrict union rights, to restrict working rights and and, and, and uh, lower capital gains tax and make it so that businesses, businesses, businesses have more and more uh, power because money, money, money matters more than people, people, people. And, and we disagree with that on the show, and we will fight for a society that values humans over money. Again, you can let us know what you think by calling us at 100.9 FM WXIR, Rochester's Extreme Independent Radio, by giving us a call at 585-219-8889, 585-219-8889. Matt, when I talk to people about this... So, yeah, let me uh, brief roadmap about eight more minutes here. I want to talk about why we need government in the economy. And then the last uh, five to six minutes on the show, we'll talk about the Supreme Court and hear from uh, the insane hypocrisies coming out of uh, the Republican Party today. Uh, When I talk about economic inequality with a lot of people, oftentimes I, I get. A response that, you know, if, if they perceive me as being socialist or heaven forbid communist, which, uh, you know, I don't care. Call me a socialist. Great. If, if, if a social, if, if me being socialist means I want you to have guaranteed healthcare, income and housing, then I'm happy to be a socialist. I'm happy to fight for you having a better life. You know? Um, so when I talk to people about this stuff, they always say, well, the, you know, aren't the government will just take over that will restrict our freedoms. That, that's a, a really uh, low 
energy argument and uh, I, I think low energy <laughs> low energy jeb that's <laughs> jeb bush low energy you know <laughs> um we need government intervention in the economy for a lot of reasons uh, let me just share several uh, you know first off is is the basic issue of workers rights if, if if it if capitalist logic means that it makes sense for people to make more money and if it makes sense for people to make as much money as possible out of whatever ways they need, then that means that labor will be exploited. If, if that if that is a logical makes senseness of the system to make as much money as possible and in doing so exploit labor, then I, you know I think that's a problem. And this is why for centuries people have fought, mainly socialists, by the way, why we have a 40-hour working week and paid vacation and so on and so forth is because of the socialist movements and workers' right movements in the United States, these political struggles. Um, you know, if there's no government intervention in the economy to say workers deserve these rights, then it will only make sense for workers to have no rights and for all, the, for all of us to go back to working 18-hour days in a factory making zero money and, you know, cutting off our limbs with, with dangerous conditions. The, um, the question I always come back to when, whenever I sort of find myself in conversation with somebody and they make the point of, or they try to make the, they bring up the idea of, well, if you give the government more power, they're just going to take away all our freedoms. The, the question I always want to ask them is what about the current system engenders freedom? What about the current system feels more free? I mean, what about having your health care, your health insurance tied to your employment feels more free than having a guaranteed system? We're living in the, in a, the most devastating uh, uh, health crisis of the last 100 years, the last century. And so, and more and more people as a result of measures taken to combat, combat the pandemic and just the general uh, devastation wrought by it are losing their jobs and losing access to their health care. And that is devastating to be experiencing in such a, a horrible uh, uh, pandemic. And so I don't feel like people are really thinking through, you know, there, I think there's like a, a failure to really grapple with or imagine what a democratic socialist society looks like when they say things like, it's just going to take away our freedoms. Yeah, you know, wake up America. What more perverse system do we have in favor of the capitalist ruling class than to say you only get health care if you have a job that bothers to provide you one? Otherwise, you do not have health care. You are not guaranteed health care. You, as a laborer, will only get health care if you sacrifice your health by performing labor for my interests. And the contradiction is even more powerful right now in that the, the safest thing, the healthiest thing to do for many people is to stay home. And so they're caught between this, uh, this uh, catch-22 of either having to go to work in order to bring food home and pay rent and have access to health care or not doing that and not risk getting sick, but, you know, not having any money to, to pay for those basic needs. And that's not a position that I think anybody should be subjected to. I don't think that's something that we as a society should be okay with. I don't think that, and anybody that disagrees, I, I just, I question, you know, your moral standing here. <laughs> I, I question your values. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, the counter argument continues with, well, what happens if we provide people guaranteed things? Won't they not want to work? I mean, you having health care doesn't mean you're not going to work. You having health care you, means you'll be healthier to work. <laughs> and just because you have health care doesn't mean that you magically have enough money to, like, meet your other basic needs, you know, out of life. <laughs> There's always going to be a, a small percentage of people who are not going to work for a variety of reasons. Either they're not interested in it. More often, I think most people who don't work are just incapable of because of maybe pre-existing pre conditions. But the idea that if you give people, if you just give away things like healthcare, like uh, like a um, a guaranteed base income, like housing, that they're just not going to want to work is ridiculous. Because I think what most, as a species. People are looking for meaning in their lives, and one way in which they find that is by working. I mean, you know, 
not having to work, I think most people would start to go stir crazy. We all have interests that we want to pursue, and those and those interests, those pursuits, have value. Indeed, and 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 the argument that we'll only ever be productive if we're forced to work is a farce. Because again, Matt, as you're saying, people want to work because working is a natural part of the human condition to like do things with your time, become good at things, and be productive and help other people through your labor. Like that's, that, I think that's a natural part of being a human being. And so I hear people all the time saying, "Well, we need labor to be exploited because otherwise we wouldn't be as productive as a society." Which is just ridiculous <laughs> because as we don't have much time to go in, into this, but we've talked about. On the, sh- on the show before how labor is increasingly being automated and how you know robots are doing everything from driving cars to the monitoring online chat boards and so the the, the, re- the reality is that we're going to have a labor glut in a few years if not decades yeah and that's okay it's okay you know it's okay i i don't think it's a bad thing for the human species to want to liberate ourselves from needing to do things as much as possible it's okay for the human species to have a goal to, for us to have more free time that's not a bad thing you know we don't need to have our future where all of us need to work eight hours a day 40 hours a week it's okay not to have that we can still work it just might not be valued by the capitalist economy but there's plenty of labor out there that people want to be doing right now that would make a demonstrable improvement in people's lives like volunteerism or art, you know, that people can't do because it doesn't pay them commensurately with the capitalist economy. And so it's okay as a species to say we want to work less and we have the ability to maintain standards of living through technology and our innovation that allow us to work less and have more free time to focus on other things that make life worth living. So we'll end that discussion on that note there, talking about the RAND Corporation's report, Trends in Income from 1975 to 2018. You're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Matt, let's end this hour's show by talking about the old U.S. Supreme Court, one of our three co-equal branches of government that is enshrined in our constitution to look after our interests as a society well gosh darn it enshrined in that constitution is the power for the president to nominate someone to uh fill the seat in the supreme court and for life for life and also for the senate to have to vote to approve the nomination the republicans in 2016 i will bring this up for the rest of my life or at least the rest of Mitch McConnell's life, that um, the Republicans did not He might outlive you. He, he might. The Republicans uh, chose, under Mitch McConnell, not to vote on Barack Obama's nominee. That was Merrick Garland after Antonin Scalia died on the bench. It was unprecedented at the time. It was viewed as highly partisan. I think it was highly partisan. There's no other way to look at it. Mitch McConnell said, we are not going to vote on whoever Barack Obama nominates for uh, the Supreme Court. This happened in like February after Scalia died. Uh, you know, th- this is back in 2016. Uh, so, even January. I think Scalia yeah. died in December of 2015. Right. And so Obama had nine or so months to nominate someone for the Supreme Court. Mitch McConnell said no. The He said the American people should decide who the next Supreme Court judge is, meaning we need to wait after the November election for the American people to choose the next president who then would choose who the next Supreme Court judges. Of course, Donald Trump won the presidency, and that's why Neil Gorsuch sits on the Supreme Court, because it should have been Merrick Garland, but instead it was uh, uh, you know, Neil Gorsuch. We shouldn't be talking about this at all in terms of left versus right if our political institutions actually worked the way they should, meaning we don't need to argue like it's a political football, but here we are, America, we have a broken democracy. Thanks in part to people like Mitch McConnell and, drumroll, Lindsey Graham. Let's hear what Lindsey Graham had to say about this in 2016 when his party, when he, someone on the Judicial uh, Committee, was thinking about not voting in Obama's Supreme Court nominee. Here's what Lindsey Graham had to say in 2016. Last year uh, of a lame duck president. This is the last year uh, of a lame duck president. And if Ted Cruz or Donald Trump get to be president, they've all asked us not to confirm or take up a selection by President uh, Obama. So if a vacancy occurs in their last year of their first term, guess what? You will use their words against them. 
I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, who it, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. Okay, Lindsey Graham, I, <laughs> I will use your words against you, Lindsey Graham, who says that in the last year of the first term of a Republican president that we should not nominate a Supreme Court justice until the next president happens to be sworn in, whether it's the current president or the next president. In one clip, I think he, he uh, made explicit uh, if the primary process had started. Matt, let's hear that, actually. Let's hear Lindsey Graham continue his amazing, you know, neural neural processing happening in his prefrontal cortex and whatever lizard brain he happens to have. Let's go to a clip from Lindsey Graham in 2018. Let's hear what he had to say about this again. If an opening comes in the last year of President Trump's term and the primary process has started... We'll wait to the next election. That was the clip I was thinking of. Really, Lindsey Graham? Okay. Uh, how come then over the past two months, you and the rest of your inane party has voted to go ahead and nominate someone for the Supreme Court? The past two months? Uh, the past uh, week. I'm sorry. The past week. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm thinking we only have two months till the election. The next two months. Yeah. So, you know, in the past... We have, we have a month. <laughs> it's not even we have two months, David. Right. We have a month. You're right. It's yeah, October. Yeah. It is, <laughs> like it is October. Days. So how come you and the rest of your party has vowed to go ahead and nominate uh, whoever this this person is to the Supreme Court? I don't even care about her name. I don't care what she stands for. I she will tell be. you why, Jason. <laughs> it's because there's no such things as standards. Right. There's only what I want. And what you want. And what I want, being Lindsey Graham, is what you don't want, being, you know, just the general Whatever. interest of the American people. Yeah. And so, and this, my friends, is democracy on fire. Because what are we supposed to do to counter this? This is, nu this is nuclear war writ large in politics. Why should we care whatever the Republican Party has to say ever about anything? Our only goal, then, if we adopt the worldview of Lindsey Graham, is, gosh darn it, they must be defeated. Whatever Republicans want to do, screw it. We're not going to do it. We're going to vote against it. We're going to filibuster. We're going to lie. We're going to cheat. We're going to steal. And Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell can be proud to destroy American democracy with their complete lack of morals and integrity and decency. And you know what their counterargument is? Their counterargument is, well, you would do it to us too, Democrats. Well, you know what? You've only given Democrats that option now. Not only have you invented that, but you've only given Democrats that option. This is where appeasement no longer becomes an option. This is Hitler in World War II that says, you know, appeasement can't work. We have to go to war. This is it. This is you calling for war because you're not opening the door for any form of appeasement. And it's a sad way to end today's episode, but golly, Americans, November 3rd's coming up. Let's all be registered to vote. <laughs> That's all I got to say. Golly. So let's end today's episode by saying thanks for listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. Stay tuned for the Esquire Hour. They come up next, and they put on a great show. Stay tuned for them. I was your host, Jason Taylor, joining the studio with a good friend and co-host, Matt Treadwell. Golly. Until next time, be well, be safe, take care, wear your mask, and bye-bye.